Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Morning. Good morning. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, 855am or 3cr.org.au. I am Zoya. It is 7am. The sun was up when we got into the studio this morning. <laughs> it was incredible. The sun was up. It's going to be a warm day, I think. I, was, I wasn't even wearing a jumper today, just a jacket. It's, it's, it's a miracle. It's, yeah. it's wonderful. Um, in the studio today, we have, as you said, me, Zoya, and we have Anya. Good morning. Anya is nursing her soy cap over there. <laughs> so excited for the day. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, Chris and Ayan and George couldn't make it in today. There, is, there are just things going around. Like, mm. How is the flu still happening? I know. Yeah, everyone's down with the flu. It's September. It just means that... Whether people like it or not, it's going to be the Zoya and Anya show today. Well, look, I am really excited about this. <laughs> I was talking with Anya last night, and I'm like, it's the starting of a cult following. Yeah. It's going to be t-shirts with our faces on it. That's my alternative career um, plan. Cult, cult To start leader. a cult. I think you would be a really, really great cult I mean, leader. if Scientology exists, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> What's the date today? It's the 3rd of September. It is the 3rd. Th- the oh, my gosh. No, yeah. you're, you're right. Yeah. It's the 3rd, but, but it's the 3rd. I know. That's, that's just, yeah. On the first, every 1st of September, I get very excited because it's the first day of Hogwarts. Mm, and me I, too. I still hope for my owl. Yeah. It still hasn't come. I it's, mean, it's a bit late, isn't it? I could do a PhD at Hogwarts. <laughs> I could be a mature student at Hogwarts. I went to watch the Harry Potter play over the weekend. Yeah. Ugh. So good. Yeah. Yeah. What was your highlight of it without giving anything away? Um, I think the special effects were just, you know, it was better than what I imagined. It's amazing what they can do with that kind of thing. Yeah, like magic on stage. Mm. Ridiculous. See, I was, I was far more sophisticated than you. Mm. Um, and having said that, I'm obsessed with Harry Potter. Mm. But um, I saw Nakia Louie's play, Blackie Blackie Brown. Oh my God, I'm going to that run. next week. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was good. Mm. It, was, it said a lot in 90 minutes. Mm. And the stagecraft was, I hadn't seen anything like it before, the combination of film and animation and a really simple set but using it very cleverly and just two people mm. it, it was really really well done amazing so i can't wait i'm so excited highly recommend it Beautiful. it was it was fantastic mm. anyway so that's our little update on what we did on our weekend because mm. i know everyone is utterly fascinated about that <laughs> <laughs> but some other things have been happening in the world as well mm. so in the absence of Chris, we are going to do our best mm. to do the news headlines. I doubt it'll be as 
comprehensive. comprehensive and well constructed as they do. But, you know, maybe they're out there listening to us, judging us. But um, it'll make them miss it. They, they better it'll make us miss them more. Better be listening in. Oh, I bet they are. It's, um, I, 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 the I, fluid I, and bid. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe our dulcet tones will make them feel better. Oh, this okay. is the All panacea right. everyone needs. Okay, sure. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you say. Absolutely. Mm. So, Anya, did you want to start off with some of the headlines, or would you like me to go with... Uh, well, maybe we'll just do a bit of an update on what's been happening with uh, some of the things we've been talking about mm. the last couple of weeks. Um, so week two of the coronial inquest into Auntie Tanya Day's uh, death is happening this week, um, and there's still one more week next week. Um, so for, for listeners who don't really know the background, very briefly... Uh, Auntie Tanya Day was a Yoda Yoda woman. Um, she was 55 at the time of her death. She was catching the V-Line service from Echuca to Melbourne on the 5th of December 2017 to see her family. Uh, she'd been drinking. And just past Bendigo, about two hours into her journey, she started to fall asleep. And basically the train conductor called the police on her. The police took her back to the police cells in Castle, Maine. She hit her head and um, the ambulance wasn't called until, you know, three hours later or something. And she uh, passed away because of uh, those injuries uh, from the from the head. Um, yeah, from the head injury. You know, she had more internal bleeding, etc. And she passed away, which is really awful. But she was also arrested under the very archaic law of public drunkenness, which was... Um, it, it was a it was an offence that the Royal Commission into um, Indigenous uh, Deaths in Custody, which happened 30 years ago, that report actually said that offence should be abolished because it was well and and you know due to be abolished at that time, but also it targeted Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people disproportionately, and obviously it was quite a racist law as well. So. You know, so there's lots of issues surrounding this this particular um, death, and so the coronial inquest is hoping to answer the questions about why that death happened, but also the family has put forward the argument that systemic racism is a factor that played into Auntie Tanya Day's um, untimely passing. And so um, it'll be really interesting to see what the outcomes of the coronial inquest will be, but at the moment, um, from what I've seen on Twitter, it's it's really sad an emotional time for the family. So if people can turn up to the court to just sit in and listen and, you know, bear witness to what's happening, that will be much appreciated. So that's the update for now. As we know more, we'll, we'll keep updating. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great idea if you can spare some time in your lunch break, mm. if you don't work one day or, or if you work on the weekends um, or if you have a bit of spare time, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's so important to, to share to help share the load when it comes to emotional things like that. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Continuing on that path of not wonderful news going on. Colonial structures. Colonial structures and Mm -hmm. all the things that it does to people of Mm colour. A bit of an update on what is happening to the Tamil family from Biliola. Anya, did you want to speak to this, or, or um, I'm more than happy to? Well, speak we've it out. just got a bit of an um, update from Chris about this, mm. um, actually. So, for listeners who don't particularly know the background, once again, it's um, this Tamil family from Bil- Biloa. Um, Biloa. So it's 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 four 
four people, um, Priya, Nardasalingam, and their daughters, Kopika and Tharunika, who mm-hmm. are four and two. Mm. Um, Priya and Nardas arrived separately by boat in around 2012, 2013. They married a few years ago, and they've been spending the last three years they have been settled in Biliola, which is a town in central Queensland. Mm-hmm. And they have been very active members of that community. The town, you know, it's, it's, been, it's become their home and it's become their community. And the town are absolutely behind them in what's been happening. Their visas expired in early 2018. Mm. The Australian government has repeatedly found them to not meet protection obligations. Mm. Um, and that includes the, an appeal rejected by the Federal Circuit Court last June mm. and a dismissed application to review their case in the High Court this May. Mm. And they've been in a, they were in a detention centre in Melbourne since early May. Oh, no, and, and t- yeah, since early May. And last Thursday night, they were due to be deported. Mm-hmm. An interim injunction not to deport Tharunika, so just the two-year-old. So both the daughters were born in Australia. Mm. Um, not to deport the youngest until tomorrow, until tomorrow at 4 p.m. was granted. So when the family touched down in Darwin, they were taken to a hotel. They have now been moved to Christmas Island. They're the only asylum seeker families in Christmas Island. Um, I actually saw a tweet saying that every, each one of them is cost, has cost the Australian government $52 million to detain them so far. Yeah, wow. That, that, that is some very great, that's some great fiscal responsibility yeah. there. Um, Scott Morrison has announced that Australia will not intervene because mm-hmm. it would send exactly the wrong message mm. to people smugglers, were his words. Yeah. And there was a hearing yesterday in the Federal Circuit Court, right. sort of pre-hearing, I suppose. Yeah. And so <clears throat> the final hearing is on Wednesday morning mm-hmm. to argue that the youngest daughter, Tharanika, deserves to be able to seek ministerial intervention. Um, Peter Dutton went on the offensive Monday morning with the Korea Mail uh, op-ed arguing that they're not refugees and they don't deserve protection, which is obviously disputed, but they have failed to legal processes so far, so you know it, it might be the only avenue, the ministerial intervention that might save them on Wednesday. Um, but he's, yeah, he's just come out swinging, just saying that that's not what he will do. Um, and Dutton faces hundreds of thousands of Australians who signed petition um, and or marched across the country on Sunday, um, as well as Greens, Labour and even some coalition people, including Barnaby Joyce mm. yesterday, came out to, to say that the family should stay. So... You know, Alan Jones, I think, also came out, and which could be a PR I think, move. I think Alan Jones has been advocating for this family for a while. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. So it's definitely a, a cross, mm. a cross political yeah. issue. This, I think, yeah, it's um, it's it's a it's a big issue and one that really is mm. rather mm. upsetting. Yeah, and there was news way. yesterday that. Um, the the boats from Sri Lanka haven't stopped. So the rhetoric that the government is pushing that this is, you know, all of this is to stop deaths at sea, um, you know, seem to contradict the fact that the boats mm. haven't stopped. Yeah, I think they said that since May it was, I believe, four boats mm. have been reported to have been into it, intervened or, or intercepted, I suppose. So that's that's quite a few of, of just the ones that have been reported. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it, the public sentiment is strongly in favour of the family, as far as we can tell. Um, hundreds and thousands of people gathered all over Australia on Sunday to protest and march, and um, a lot of, I guess, celebrities have been calling on the minister 
to interfere. Scott Morrison, as far as I know, has come out yesterday and said that it won't happen. Um, but, you know, we'll see. I mean, you know, it could change. But mm. uh, it all depends on the on the hearing tomorrow as well in terms of legal avenues. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what really changed a lot of people's minds um, or affected them in some way was the video that went viral of um, the family being boarded onto the plane and the kids being separated from the mother and just um, having a really tough time. And no matter what your stance on immigration policies are, you know, I mean, you know, what's happening in the U.S. with the kids and the families and the mothers, it was, I think it was just really hard for people to see and think that, yeah. I think I think absolutely you're right. I think it's a nation or a state or a government may have a policy mm. and we may disagree with that policy, mm. but they have a right to have the policy. You can't, yeah. you can't stop that. The inaction of that policy mm. and the way in which people do that, separating, physically separating mm. parents from their children is... is reprehensible it's monstrous it's it's you 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 treat it it really goes to show the extent to which policies like this are developed because governments view certain groups of people as subhuman and they view children as not worthy of as much love and support as other children absolutely absolutely and we just want to um, jump in and quickly say that if listeners listening to this, um, this is you know quite heavy content, and if it's bringing up things for you, there's always support available. Um, and please look after yourselves. There's a lot of lot of this news just circulating around, and it's quite distressing. So you know, keep fighting, but also take care of yourselves. Um, very closely in relation to that, um, we also just wanted to talk about the Medivac legislation, mm. which um, the it has. So the Medivac repeal legislation has passed the lower house successfully, and it's now up to the Senate um, to determine whether or not that legislation will be repealed. The Medivac legislation is basically um, uh, asylum seekers offshore. Um, who are facing uh, medical issues, the legislation allows them to come on shore to Australia to seek medical help. And um, that was passed, I'm pretty sure, last year. So it's a very new legislation, and now the coalition is trying to repeal it. And really the main person who's determining whether or not the legislation will be repealed is Jackie Lambie. And I saw a news article yesterday that she's just blasted the government for bringing the vote forward um, in September instead of end of October or something and not giving her enough time to consider the issues related to whether or not the legislation should be repealed. I think the news article quoted her as being deeply irritated. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe that'll help with her decision. Who knows? I must say, you know, we can say what we want about some of our, some other of Jackie Lambie's views and, you know, she's got a wide range of different views that mm. make her a very complex person. Mm. What I do appreciate about her is that she is genuinely trying to engage with the issues. Absolutely. And understand how they are relevant to both her, mm. her constituents, mm. and the people that she represents in terms of who she is as a person. Absolutely. Like and what all politicians should do, it's, right? It's what, yeah, it, absolutely. And I think having a politician stand up and say, I need time to consider this, mm. I, I have respect for that. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully that will lead to some measured response on her part. Absolutely. 
So Jackie, if you're listening to this, please, please, Jackie, we're counting on you. If you want, if you want some some little crib notes about the <laughs> issues, please get 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 it get in touch with your friendly friendly local you know experts. And they'll be able to help you experts. out. <laughs> that's 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 not us. <laughs> We're not experts in legislation by any stretch. Absolutely. Moving, looking outside of what's happening. Actually, one more thing that's happening in politics. The religious discrimination bill was introduced last week. That's something that many people may be across. So Christian Porter um, launched the bill last week. It's actually, I believe, a series of three different bills that are coming together that are there to shore up the rights of people to be able to um, talk about the things that they believe to be true based in their religion or, or carry out practices based in their religion, those kinds of things. Very, very important thing to be able to do and to not be fired by their employers for doing that in a public space. This obviously, in many ways, has come out of the events that happened earlier this year with Israel Folau being, um, what's, what would be the word, fired, I suppose, mm. by Rugby Australia for expressing some rather homophobic views. Mm. The Religious Discrimination Bill is a um, controversial bill Mm. because some of the elements of it perhaps seem rather reactive and maybe remove rights from other groups while giving rights to some other groups. Mm. Um, whether or not it'll go through, we'll see. It hasn't been tabled in Parliament yet. As far as I believe, the government would like to have it passed by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. But there are some conversations going on around it, including on Sunday, Tanya Plibersek, the shadow education minister, saying that, there were, that she had some concerns, that Labour have some concerns around how this bill will interact with legislation uh, carried out or enacted by other states, in particular the Tasmania Anti-Discrimination Bill, which is the most comprehensive of its kind in Australia and prevents things like hate speech or acts of um, bigotry or hatred against certain groups, including mm. queer people. So we're yet to see what will happen with it. It was an interesting week last week in mm. terms of the interaction between different rights of different groups, um, which we might get into later, but watch this space. We'll keep updating mm. about this. And we'll bring in someone to talk about the bill as about well. The bill. Absolutely. So maybe before we jump into the show, let's go through what we're going to be doing today. Mm. Um so in a bit, you'll be hearing from Gemma Carparella. We've had Gemma on a couple of times to talk about the Save the Footscray Park campaign. Um, so she's going to be talking to us about the campaign, but also what the new updates are. At about 7.45, we're going to be talking to Renda Hudge, um, who's a Melbourne-based filmmaker, about her latest film project, Hyatt. And then at 8 o'clock, we have Ruby Hamad, uh, a journalist and academic who will be coming in and talking about her new book, White Tears, Brown Scars, which is actually out today. Amazing. And we'll on, be on the phone coming in, but you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Conceptually coming in. I'm looking very much forward to talking to her about that. Mm -hmm. And following that at 8.10, we have our regular monthly Queer Space spot. Today we'll be having Felicity Marlowe um, coming in, who is the education coordinator for Queer Space and she'll be talking about the births, deaths and marriages legislation that passed last week. Ooh. 
And so that is our show. Big show. Quite a few different people. Big show. So before we jump into the show, um, we just want to dedicate this song to the um, the Tamil family. Uh, this song is a Tamil song. Uh, it's called Nila Kaigirudu. It's one of my favorite, favorite songs. Um, I think it came out in the 1980s or something. Um, but I think every Tamil child has probably heard this song. Um, so if you're listening somewhere, uh, just know that we're thinking of you and um, enjoy. is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself Anya and Zoya in the studio. That song, that was Nila Kaigirudu, which is um, a song that came out in the 1980s uh, and it's sung... I mean, in the in the movie, it's sung by a little child um, <clears throat> to her dad, and um, we just want to dedicate this to to the family. We're thinking of you. It was a really beautiful song. Up now, we have some audio from la- early was it early last week or late week before with whether when um, a large convoy went down to oh, up to the Jaburong Embassy. The Jabberong Embassy is still continuing. Um, no significant updates as of yet, but there is a protest next week at Parliament House on Tuesday at, I believe, 8.30am um, to 12pm. 12, 12 if you still have time, go up to the embassy, send supplies, drive people. It's still continuing. We still need to keep having people up there to protect the sacred birthing trees. So now we have some audio from uh, Trades Hall before the convoy went up. 
a couple of speeches by Mariki Onus, co-founder of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and Edie Shepherd, former Aboriginal Union organiser at VTHC. And this audio was captured by our very own MV from Queering the Air, who is a fantastic radio mentor. proud Wiradjuri and Noongar woman. I'm also a proud trade unionist and a member of the mighty ASU, NTU and First Nations Workers Alliance. And before we kick off, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional and true custodians of the land that we're gathered on today, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the mighty Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders and warriors, past, present and emerging. I would also like to extend that extent to all other mob here with us today. Sovereignty was never ceded. We are on stolen lands for which a treaty or sovereign agreement has never been negotiated. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. But to acknowledge country is not merely words. We are, look, acknowledging country is to ground yourself and truly consider and appreciate where you are and how you came to be here. To acknowledge country is to take action. And today is a big day, comrades. And it's absolutely incredible to see so many of you here, rank and filers, trade union officials, allies and supporters, in support of the staunch ongoing resistance happening right now at the Jaffarong Heritage Protection Embassy. And their fight is historic. And we're standing outside of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, a symbol and the home of the Victorian trade union movement, a movement that I'm so proud to know stands beside the Jaffarong people in their fight. And we know why we're here. Daniel Andrews, Jacinta Allen and the Victorian government want to viciously carve through Daffarong Dreaming landscape. Tear down trees and destroy songlines to build a road. Just this Wednesday, Daniel Andrews, the most progressive Premier in the most progressive state in Australia, went on record saying that arrests and police presence would be regrettable but necessary. Shame. Now, I'm not going to spin a yarn for too, young, too long, but I want to say a couple of things before I pass over to Warrior Woman Mariki Otis and Luke Hilakari. To Daniel Andrews, Jacinta Allen, Vic Rhodes and Major Rhodes Projects Victoria, we are not going anywhere. The Embassy's power, presence and peaceful resistance grows every single day. Because we know that this is all of our struggle. And the trade union movement has a saying, touch one, touch all. Because we know that an injustice to the few is injustice to all of us. Our liberations are tied together. They're intrinsically intertwined. And we cannot be free until we are all equal and free. And what's happening up on Japarong country is the sharp end of capitalism and colonialism. And it's on all of us to struggle and to fight back in the defence of our shared history, legacy and what is sacred. We cannot stand by and watch the colonial project continue to attempt cultural genocide. So today and every day, we recommit ourselves to that struggle. And you probably, because you probably wouldn't tear pages out of a book, right? But if you did, chances are you could, you could pop down the street, go to readings and replace it. But Jaffarong landscapes, dreaming and songlines, the stories that are held in that country are priceless and irreplaceable and it must be protected. 
And now I'm going to throw over to Mariki Onis, warrior woman, chaperone legend, to spin a yarn because you're not here to hear from me.
Not only is that Aboriginal sacred country, you need that country to drink water. The Labor government are involved in that. I understand that there are even unions who are fighting to, to stay in that forest, to chop it down. Let's talk about that. Let's change that. We need to talk about that. Stop destroying sacred countries. Stop de destroying drinking water. Let's transition from that. Stop killing Aboriginal people. Thank you very much for today. You're listening to 3CR. This is Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 7.34am on the 3rd of September. You just heard some audio from the, um, a couple of speeches by Mariki Onus, co-founder of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and Edie Shepherd, former Aboriginal union organiser at VTHC, um, that were recorded by our colleague MV as part of the Trades Hall convoy to Jabberong Embassy last week. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurang Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurang country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japurang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japurang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. That was Natural Woman by Kite, a George favourite. So, George, if you're out there listening, that was for you. So, this is Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR um, with myself, Anya and Zoya. And on the line now, we have Gemma Carfarella. Hi, Gemma. Good morning, Anya. Hi, Zoya. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us this morning, Gemma. So, you... Um, uh, on the phone to talk to us about Safe Footscray Park campaign. What is this campaign about? Okay, so um, it's a, a community campaign that's being run in Footscray at the moment um, in response to plans to give away a really large piece of our local park, our only park in Footscray, um, to a private company, so to Melbourne Victory Football Club, um, to start a soccer academy and also, as far as we can tell, have their headquarters placed down there. Mm -hmm. um, for people who haven't been to Footscray Park or don't know Footscray very well, it's a really amazing um, park. It's been um, it's been a park. I mean, of course, it's on Wurundjeri land, um, but it's been a park since 1911 when it was um, the local people of Footscray fought to have a park. We didn't we didn't have anything, and I think the people looked over at the eastern suburbs that were richer um, and saw that they had a whole bunch of recreation space and parks, and so the people of Footscray campaigned mm -hmm. for its creation. Um, and actually donated the um, 
the money, a lot of the money and the, the, the plants are there in labour to build the park. Um, and now what we're seeing is uh, a takeover by a private company. And what is the private company trying to do with the land again? Um, so they want to start a private soccer academy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but we're also seeing, I mean, the information that the community is getting is pretty thin on the ground, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and council have been negotiating with Melbourne Victory for about four years behind closed doors before they've come to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we see is that not only is it going to be a private soccer academy, um, but it will also be what seems to be a pretty big headquarters for Melbourne Victory. Um, so it'll have like corporate spaces and, um, you know, like uh, entertainment spaces. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that Melbourne Victory seem really um, keen on is the fact that it's got really beautiful views um, across the Maribyrnong Valley. It's right next to the river mm. um, and also of the city. So it just um, smacks to us of a really big corporate land grab. Yeah, right. And how much um, public consultation was done before, you know, this this all came up? Yeah, it's been appalling. Um, so the first time they came to the community was it was like towards the start of this year, um, but it was done really quietly by an online portal mm. um, and I don't think they got very much consultation and it was only when a few people realised and kicked up a big stink um, that they um, that there was a bit more consultation, I guess, because um, a few people in Footscray started telling other people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so, but it's just been a farcical consultation process. So um, they called for public submissions. Um, they didn't put any requirement that they be from local residents. Mm-hmm. So now they've put out information saying that there's a 50-50 split um, for and against the proposal. But what we learn through asking them questions, and they mm. never volunteer any of this information, we have to push them for it, um, is that of the submissions that had an address that showed a, a, you know, someone who actually lived in the area, mm. um, 59% were opposed to it. Um, and only 25% of people who had actually showed an address that was um, from the area yeah. were in favour. So we think that um, basically Melbourne, we know that Melbourne Victory have gone out to their membership base mm-hmm. um, and encouraged them to make submissions. So I think we've had people from all over Melbourne who have got nothing to do with Footscray, mm-hmm. don't know the park, don't love the park, mm-hmm. send in submissions mm-hmm. and our council counts that as a 50-50 split of local opinion. Yeah. And, I mean, speaking of the council, there was a bit of action um, I suppose, with the council recently. Um, and I'm not sure how much of it you can actually talk about, but can you give us a bit of an update about that? Yeah, so council have voted on the master plan. We actually, the council officers, so the people who aren't elected in the council, recommended that our councillors reject this um, master plan, which is the document that would put Melbourne Victory into our park. Mm. Um, and at the start, that seemed like a really big win. Mm-hmm. Um, But actually, we really, like, the more we find out about it, the more concerned we are because what council seems to be doing is finding a way to push it through without putting their own necks on the chopping block. So they've decided to start a community consultation panel, Mm -hmm. which is just appalling. Um, It's going to be mainly made up of local sporting groups who have put um, formal submissions in in support of Melbourne Victory going into the area. Mm. Um, and a lot of them have also got formal relationships with Melbourne Victory. Mm. Um, so we think they've got a pretty big conflict of interest. And then there's going to be five residents elected, in inverted commas, onto the 
the committee, um, but the way that they're going to be elected is by an online portal. So we've seen that Melbourne Victory are willing to um, interfere in the community consultation process and council aren't putting anything in place that would mean that Melbourne Victory supporters from all over Melbourne um, wouldn't be able to vote in this. So we think that what's going to happen is they'll just swamp this election process mm-hmm. um, and put five people who are friendly to Melbourne Victory on the panel. And the other important thing to say is that while this panel is apparently meant to be looking at other options, you know, and being open to the fact that this might not go ahead, there's a memorandum of understanding in place between Victory and Council that means that um, legally Council's not allowed to consider anything else for the area in Footscray Park other than Melbourne Victory. Yeah, wow, okay. Yeah. That is <laughs> very hectic. It's pretty telling, right? It <laughs> seems like a genuine local consultative process. Yeah. And not to change the direction of this uh, chat, but I just really want to plug that, you know, um, the merchandise that you guys have as well, um, the tote bag and the T-shirts and, um, you know, they're beautiful, but also obviously, you know, people wearing them and using that merchandise brings more attention to the campaign. Um, do you want to maybe talk about how people can get their hands on those? Well, Anya, that is a very good reminder because we actually need to do a reprint. We've run out. Um, and oh, wow. I okay. do want to acknowledge um, we had an artist, Tia Cass, mm-hmm. um, who is a fantastic uh, artist who did those um, images for us um, for free. And so we're eternally grateful to Tia for doing that. Um, we will do a reprint and we have a website, which is davefootscraypark.com. Mm-hmm. And so people should keep an eye out in the, in the next few weeks because we will do a restock. Um, and yeah, I really, I feel a little bit um, biased, of course, of course mm-hmm. but I think they are really like impressive yeah. um, merch options. So, yeah, yeah, we're um, we've been really happy to see people walking the streets wearing our t-shirts. Yeah, Lovely. perfect. And and just before we wrap up, Gemma, um, what's the way forward? How can people contribute? What can they do? Um, so follow us on Facebook. Um, there's a Facebook page which is facebook.com forward slash Save Footscray Park. Um, we update our website um, from time to time with um, what's going on. But at the moment, the fight is really um, about what happens with this consultation process. So if people um, have heard what's going on and are opposed to the way that it's going down, we would really encourage them to get in contact with their local councillors um, and also with our local MPs. So we've got Katie Hall um, in Footscray who's responsible for the area with the park. And I'd really encourage people to get involved and, and actually get on the phone. Um, and I'd also um, reach out to people outside of Footscray. I mean, you know, primarily we're saying that, you know, local people should have a say about what happens in the local area. But to people listening who aren't from Footscray, um, I would just encourage them to have a think about the precedent that this sets for public land. Mm. Um, the idea that um, because a private company sees a potential market or need for something in an area, um, that we give away a really rare, unique, environmentally important piece of land that at the moment is available to our entire um, brilliant multicultural community for a range of uses. Um, and instead, we're going to potentially see that handed over to a private company. You know, I would encourage people from all around Melbourne to have a look at this um, because we think it's setting a really appalling precedent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Gemma, and all the best. Keep fighting the good fight. Well, thank you for having me. Our pleasure.
The Australian Plants Expo is a huge native plant fair with displays, books, garden pots, giftware and activities for children, along with talks, demonstrations, workshops, refreshments and door prizes. The Australian Plants Expo, Saturday the 14th and Sunday the 15th of September, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Adults $5, concessions $4 and children free. Contact Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra via email on apsyarrayarra at gmail.com or call 0430 513 433 for more information. The Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra is a 3CR supporter. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with me, Zoya and Anya. That was Take Me, I'm Yours by Mary Clark, a fantastic funk song from the 80s because I love funk. It seems like we're just playing 80s songs at the moment because, you know, it's just me and Anya in the studio. We can do what we want. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) That's not entirely true. We've got other people in the studio now. I know. I was about to say, Anya, why don't you introduce some people that we've got in the room? We've got the beautiful, wonderful, Renda in the studio with us. Hi, Renda. Hey, how are you guys going? Good. Now, Renda, tell us about yourself. I'm 23 and I'm based in Melbourne and I direct films. Yes, that's like <laughs> the best description. <laughs> that's a very understated way of um, explaining what you actually do, which is amazing. Um, so you're here to talk to us about your new film. Can you tell us about this new film? Um, it's a short documentary um, that kind of explores and documents the lives of a migrant, a beautiful migrant family mm-hmm. living in Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of like intimately observes just their lives at home and just um, what they do and the dynamics between each other, mm-hmm. their relationships, and obviously um, a bit of the the struggle, I guess, or the experiences settling into this country um, as a single mother and raising four children. Okay. And what's the film called? Called Hayat. So what what does that mean? In Arabic, it means life. And it was the name of the eldest daughter yeah. in the family. Yeah. And during the film's um, screening Q&A, um, you said something to the effect of, I had to tell the story. Why was this project so important to you? I think because, so this was meant to be like my grad film from uh-huh. uni, okay, yeah. which it turned out to be kind of more than that because that was very limiting. Mm. But um, I guess my idea was to tell a story that was really, really honest um, and really intimate as well. And I guess the only way I could do that was bringing 
through some of my personal experiences. So I'm African-Australian mm-hmm. and I come from a migrant family. Mm-hmm. And I guess a lot of the experiences that you see observed through this film um, are some of my own as well. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt like for like my first real like documentary film, mm-hmm. um, I needed to do something that was really honest and something I could really closely work on and relate to yeah. um, to be able to tell in a true way. Yeah. And watching you interact with the eldest daughter of the family, Hayat, the namesake of the film, you could tell that there was real affection between the two of you. So this question is a two-parter. A, how was this family selected? And B, how did you convince them to let you record (laughs) their most intimate family moment? Convince them that was difficult. (laughs) Um, Well, for for the first part, it was, um, they kind of, I've known them for, several years so when mm-hmm. Sarah who's the youngest daughter when she was um, born because she's six years old now mm-hmm. I was kind of there when she was born and I kind of knew the family mm-hmm. through my auntie who is neighbors with them and my auntie helped them kind of yeah settle a bit in this country and help Rahma um, who's the mother uh, with a lot of documents and paperwork so we kind of already had established a relationship I just hadn't seen them in a while mm-hmm. um, so it was definitely one of those things where you kind of there's already a little bit of trust built up um, from all those years knowing them, mm. but then it was lost, so I had to really get to know them again. Um, I kind of was, like, pushing to my auntie, like, I needed to sort out a subject for uni, so I was on a yeah. time frame as well. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of kind of, like, pushing, yeah. but um, as in just to be able to, like, spend time with them yeah. and then kind of hopefully just like you know establish that relationship and be like hey guys like now I really do want to film you so please let me and it was yeah. it was um over several months like we've been working on this for six months and it was probably like three months of just solid like mm. just meeting them getting to know them spending time at home getting my team to come individually spend time with them mm. so there was like a lot of that So I think by the time we started filming, they were so used to having us around, they kind of just, like, would chill with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really important to build a trust as well. And, I mean, I'm not sure about your community, but in my community, if you just tell someone that you really need something for a school or a uni project, (laughs) they'll really come through. Yeah. That changes everything. Um, So Hayat is about many things, family, diaspora, blues, migration, identity, all of those things. Was it your intention to make the story universal or was that a natural development along the way? I think 100% it was meant to be universal from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of, my whole team and I and my producer, Morty, um, as well, we had a lot of conversations about um, what it, what the context was and the fact that I wanted it to be really subtle on the screen. Mm. So I didn't want it to kind of, I didn't want it to be obvious in terms of like what their family situation was. I just kind of wanted you to be able to see mm. exactly what was happening with their family and their lives. Um, so a lot of those themes were what we kind of talked about and they were kind of inevitable mm-hmm. in terms of have it's like p- playing a really big and fundamental role Mm. in their lives because it is about identity it's about love and compassion it's about family dynamics obviously it's about race um and a lot of the issues that come with race yeah and being um of muslim faith as well so yeah Mm. i feel like yeah it was yeah it was and so you're a black filmmaker in an industry that's notoriously white and you know we all know what the the industry looks like. 
So what's been your experience studying and making films so far? To be honest, and especially working on this film, because I've made documentaries before, uh-huh. but I feel like definitely working on this film, I've, I definitely know it's true, and it, it can be really hard, I think, on a larger scale, um, breaking into the system and kind of having a voice mm-hmm. in the industry, which is a big deal. But I feel really lucky um, and grateful that I've been kind of given the the platform and the chance actually mm. to just like be able to share this story and have so many people support it and relate to it. And I kind of feel like you just have to keep making stuff and like making sure that you're working with a diverse team, which is what we really tried hard to build on. Mm making sure that there's enough women and people of colour and just kind of if you want um, the industry to be in a certain way, you kind of have to shape that yourself Mm. and make sure that every time you create something, you're working with the kind of people that you, you know, you want to be able to see in the future. So I think that's kind of the experience it's been for me so far. Mm. It's a lot of work, isn't it? Yeah. And, I mean, I guess what you know, bigger than this film, bigger than bigger than you, I suppose. What does the film industry need to do to enhance diversity, not just in their casting, but in all areas of filmmaking, including, you know, directing, writing, producing, all of that? Just making sure that there are those spaces, mm. ava- like not just available, but like making sure that you have a conscious decision of like, if you want it to be um, an all-female crew, make sure you get an all-female crew. If you want them to be of different backgrounds or a specific background um, or race, make sure that you actively go do that. Um, Because, like, with this film, there were times where I had to be, like, I'm filming a a documentary Mm. in a really small household. And so they're, like, they're a family coming from a different background and they look a certain way and they look very much like me. Mm. And I didn't want to bring in uh, an all-white crew because mm-hmm. it would have been really invasive and I it just it would have been uncomfortable even mm-hmm. for me and I know it would have been for the family so I had to literally be like I don't care if it's a boy or a girl um but I I need it to like I need there to be someone of like a different background mm-hmm. so we had like our sound recorder Cesar um who was Colombian, Colombian. he was Colombian and, like, I felt like that made a lot of difference because he kind of, there was certain cultural things that he understood mm-hmm. a bit better. So it's just, like, small, like, making small steps like that mm. really changes the way that your documentary then comes out. So a lot of the, the crew later on as well in post-production were of different backgrounds. Mm. And, again, it all leaks into what you see on the screen in the end. Yeah. And coming back to the film, I mean, the um, this is all more relevant because the film is an observational documentary to see the family in a natural setting and without the input of a narrator. So why did you choose this particular type of documentary style? Um, I think it's just a style that like I've always just been more interested mm-hmm. um, on focusing on. I like From the beginning, I kind of made it very clear to everyone that I didn't want to like a voiceover or narration yeah, at all. Okay. There were times when we were filming where we were kind of like, maybe this is something that like we need to have because it might not work otherwise. But I kind of felt like if if we need to in the end, we will, but like let's do everything we can not to. Mm. So we found a lot of ways to make it really natural and still kind of have 
Rahma, for example, as like the main character Mm -hmm. and lead in the film, ways to kind of have her talking to us um, and having a normal conversation um, and in a really natural manner Mm. and having that kind of as the narration but really subtle and so you couldn't you didn't really feel like you were you were being told a story behind the scenes and it wasn't like you know back when I came from this country and this I Uh find that really boring and I find with this kind of film it really didn't work so I kind of wanted to create my own style I guess and continue with that yeah that's beautiful yeah and I'm um I mean I could talk to you for hours about this. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up because uh, Zoya's glaring at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when and where can the public see this film um, next? When is the next showing? Um, we're kind of on like our film festival tour right now. Ah, uh, okay. So there's a f- hopefully something coming up, but we probably can't say right at this stage. Mm. But um, look, definitely look out for it on our Instagram page. It's just Hayat Film. 2019 mm-hmm. um and we'll basically post about like where you can see if there's any screenings coming up okay. and then hopefully it'll be online soon after oh, beautiful. that yeah so you have to let us know yeah of course beautiful thank you so much thank for coming you in so today much for it's been an me. absolute pleasure thank you 3cr are selling kafir palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in hebron palestine All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history on sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Good morning, this is 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. You're in the studio with me, Zoya and Anya. Um, 3CR 855am and 3cr.org.au. It is 8.06am. Right now we have on the line Ruby Hamad, a Lebanese-Syrian journalist and author who was raised in Australia. Her work has appeared in Fairfax Media, The Guardian, Prospect Magazine and The New Arab, a very impressive person, and currently a PhD candidate in Media and Postcolonial Studies at the University of New South Wales. And Ruby has a fantastic new book out today. Ruby, how are you today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm so excited to talk about this book. I've had a read of it and it was just fantastic. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, So just to start us off, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about this book and what led you to write it, White Tears, Brown Scars? 
Okay, so thanks for, for reading. Um, I can't believe it's actually out there. Um, <laughs> so it, um, it spawned out of a, a, an article I wrote last year. I can't believe it's only a year. Like, uh, it's like forever ago for, for The Guardian that, that went um, very unexpectedly viral um, across, you know, across the globe. And so the article was how white women use strategic keys to silence women of colour. And it obviously struck a, a, a great nerve. Um, and, it, 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 you know, the, the, the article was about my own experiences and then speaking to other you know, brown and, and black women um, in which they felt that when they were uh, having a conflict uh, with a white woman, and it can be like in a professional setting or a social setting, if they, you know, if they tried to challenge her because you know, if they felt sort of you know wronged by something she said or done, and they 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 just tried to even just bring it up with her, um, they were got shut down really quickly and, and accused of being uh, uh, you know being a bully or be, or attacking her or being unfair, and it kind of creates this, this well it does create this situation where the woman the woman of colour feels unable to sort of continue or to pursue because she's quickly boxed into this corner of being irrational and angry and, and aggressive. Mm. And it, that's the, the article came out of that. And then yeah, the, the book came out of that article. And, and so the book is just essentially a, an exploration of what could lead to this dynamic. So I'm exploring the, 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 the stereotypes um, that sort of govern the lives of brown and black woman without us really realizing and the history of those absolutely i found those stereotypes and archetypes that you talk about really um it was such a simple way of you um explaining this idea by drawing on mm. stereotypes but it, it really made it so clear and so obvious just how systemic this issue is and obviously I don't want to get too far into it because we don't want to ruin the book for people um what I'm quite interested in knowing is as well who's the audience of this book who are you writing this book for well I wrote uh, I, I'm writing for uh women of color so that um you know a lot when even just when the article came out I did I had so many like dozens of women uh, write to me and say that they I'd articulated an experience that they, they thought was peculiar to them and they couldn't understand it. Uh, they thought they were going crazy. They thought, why has this happened to me? I, I, am I going to lose all my friends? Do I need to change my behavior? Why? You know, so I want to reach more women and to show them, look, this is, it's not you. Maybe in some cases, you know, it's not to say that we're never right, but if you're, if you're in a situation that follows this, this pattern quite predictably and you're doing everything that you can to try to just talk to another person but everything you say is interpreted as an attack or as irrational then and and, and other women are having the exact same uh, experience then, then this has to be a systemic issue uh, it's also written for white women and not only for, uh, not only white women it's, it's written for a, a, an audience that is interested not only in women and in feminism but in our history and in the roles that women have played. Mm. We, don't, we look at women's history as sort of this side 
you know, as if it exists as, as you know, like a sort of side story to, to history, because real history is what has happened in, you know, the political arena, in the war arena. But the role that women have played in the construction of, of society is huge. And we, we can't really get an understanding of that, of our society and, and how we can make it better. I think until we factor that in, um, the roles that, that women um, have played um, willingly, the roles they've been forced to play, and the way that they've been, you know, demonised and the way other women have been elevated in order to perpetuate, you know, this, this image of, of Western society as sort of the, the benevolent, the ethical, the, the, the good democracy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so much of that spoke to me. It, it really brought up a lot of memories of, um, you know, growing up as a person of colour, as, as a feminised person of colour, and the responses that you get from people when you stand up for yourself, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I found very interesting was that um, you place your book very sort of squarely within the context of, in brackets, post-colonial um, settler societies. Mm-hmm. What makes a context like Australia, and obviously that's your main area of focus, and um, particularly unique or worthy of exploration when it comes to this idea of white womanhood and the impact it has on women of colour? Because I think um, this is where the trajectories of women um, sort of deviated, because, you know, in, in societies that came out or, or with, a, with a, a history of, of you know, Abrahamic monotheistic religions, the position of women was fairly similar, right? Sort of the burden of sort of the shame, the sin, um, you know, because of Eve, etc. What happened, and, and Bell Hooks talks about this in, in her book, her, um, Angel Woman, um, is that in, in, in she, you know, she focuses on the United States, um, but I sort of broaden that because I think it applies to, to all the European settler societies. Um, that the role of white women, that they were able to kind of overcome that that um, sort of instant or perennial guilt um, by adopting the sort of that damsel persona of the, the, the virtuous, impeccable, chaste white woman. And this is the woman by which all other women were compared and, and, and obviously can fall in short. Um, and so I think that that um, kind of simultaneous elevation, like putting the, the woman, the white woman, on the pedestal, it was very much a it was a, a, a prison as well because fall off that pedestal and you're completely, you know, you're 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 completely worthless like all other all the other non-white women. So to, to be a white woman wasn't just the colour of your skin; it was really. Um, how well you were prepared to play that role or pretending to play that role. Um, so I think that, the, you know, settler colonial society really, um, I think that that kind of changed or, or you know, that or, or um, just disrupted uh, that position of woman as sort of the, the, the holder of, um, you know, the sense the, 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 the culpability for the fall, et cetera. That's such an interesting perspective to take, and yet mm. it makes it makes so mm. much sense. Almost like that that handing down of subjugation as more and more people are, I you know, as the hierarchy shifts and more people are identified as being less than human or less than worthy. Yeah, um, yeah. 
yeah, yeah it's, it's... I, when I read it, I read sort of when so hooked tackled, I was like, oh my goodness, yes, <laughs> this is this is why, like, yeah, sort of colonialism just changed so much. Absolutely, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, your book, as you said, comes off the back of the article you wrote in 2018, mm-hmm. and I mean, a year and a half can make such a big difference, and it, it almost feels like the racial and political landscape here in Australia and globally has become even more polarised and even more combative. I mean, some, I don't know how that could happen, but it has. Mm. Um, has that impacted the way you sort of perceive this book and the way it fits into a wider conversation about white supremacy? I, I just, I feel like the book just gets more and more relevant. Yeah. Like, um, I'm already, like, you know, I just think, wow, like, there's so much that's happened since, you know, I, I filed the last, the final draft only like a few months ago, and even then, I was like con- constantly updating little things because it's just it's it's so relevant. And you know, the, some of the, the, the people who worked on the book with me, and then I'll, they'll still, you know, the editors or you know, publishers, or, or you know, they'll just email me or send me a quick message, and like, I saw this story today, and it's just like it's your book, you know. So you know, I, I've had quite a few people already tell me like, like they. Now that they've seen it, they can't unsee it everywhere. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's only becoming more relevant. And this whole thing about us being polarised and, um, and we're dividing to identity politics, our society, and it's like, it's, you know, it's, our society was already divided. We were just not able or even really permitted to articulate it mm. um, because, you know, we... we Talk, you know, I was on a Q&A program last night and they're talking about how, well, we can't, you know, say anything now because the left and they're, you know, they're silent. Sort of, and it's like, you know, we, people of colour and, and women of colour especially, have had to self-censor for centuries uh, because anything we said was used to condemn us. Yeah. Um, and now us just trying to speak. And, and demanding a bit of respect is considered like trying to silence other people. Right? And, and don't get me wrong, I know there is there can be quite a bit of policing going on in in our spaces and and, and things. And these are these are issues we should be be speaking about. But the idea that identity politics is to blame for all the division in society that's that's like saying that just by giving something a name, you've you've created it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just people mm. resenting people like us having a microphone, <laughs> I suppose. But I say standing in front of a microphone. Anyway, I, would, I could talk about this with you all day. This is just an area of such interest. Um, but unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up. But I suppose, um, most importantly, where can people find you and where can they find your book? Yes. So, um, as we said, book's out today. So, in uh, Melbourne, it's out. It's in reading, Dimmerick, uh, usual, like, you know, the, the, the pretty much all the main booksellers. So, you can get it online, Booktopia, you can order through MEP. Uh, I'll be at the Melbourne Writers Festival in on Saturday, uh, 1 p.m., in conversation with Amal Awad, speaking about um, White Tears, Brown Scarves. And then I'll be back at the Wheeler Centre in late September. Fantastic. Um, yeah, 25th. So, yeah, it's um, kind of, yeah, exciting times. <laughs> but, you know. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, yeah. Ruby Hamad, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank and um, good luck with the book. Thank you so much.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. The time is 8.19 a.m. We just had an interview with Ruby Hamad about her new book, White Tears, Brown Scars, that is out today. On the line now, we have um, our regular monthly Queer Space segment. And today we have Felicity Marlowe, the Queer Space Education and Training Coordinator. My voice went weirdly Australian just then. And a long-time LGBTIQ advocate. Felicity, how are you today? Hi, good, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, why don't you tell me um, a little bit about the work you do at Queer Space by way of introduction? Sure. Uh, so I guess Queer Space has many elements to it, and most people know that we do an amazing job serving our LGBTI communities and our families with our counselling and wraparound family services. But other parts of what we do do is go out and do training and education to the services that we might be accessing in our communities, so whether it's mental health services, um, schools, community health services, um, and also the family violence services as well. So we have a sort of a suite of training programs, and part of our job is to go out and, and do that kind of work in the communities that we are all part of, but just to um, ensure that inclusive practice is something people have access to outside of sort of central Melbourne, I guess. Mm, really, really important work. And today, I suppose you're not in to talk about that specifically, but I guess you are in to help educate us a little bit. And um, I understand um, you want to talk a little bit about the birth, deaths and marriages amendment bill that passed last week um, through the Legis Legislative Assembly on Tuesday. Why don't you um, let us know a little bit about that? Look, it's been a long time coming, these reforms, and it is funny sometimes when you're trying to do a chant, we did a little rally and we were like, what do we want? Birth certificate reform. <laughs> like, it was a funny thing to ask for, I guess. Um, but it, these reforms were a long time coming and have promised of this um, Daniel Andrews government over two terms. The first attempt in 2016 was incredibly disappointing and the bill went down by one vote. And at that time, there was a lot going on um, in a lot of other different spaces. There'd been the attacks on safe schools. There'd been the attacks um, by the federal government on ideas around, um, you know, marriage equality and wanting to bring in a plebiscite, a national vote, um, to look at changing the laws. And that, at that time in 1996 had a lot of people very busy and unfortunately it, it probably meant that um, not enough time and effort could be gone into really changing the hearts and minds of the elected representatives at the time. So one vote was incredibly disappointing. So since then, um, many advocates, particularly in the trans, gender diverse and non-binary communities, have continued to call for change and especially after the marriage equality campaign and, and the result of the postal survey saw those communities feel very isolated and in somewhat erased, it was re really important that um, organisations like Queer Space, but organisations that are supportive of our TGD communities in so many ways, really got behind this bill this time. And so, yeah, it was an incredible win last week, but it also was an incredible show of um, real solidarity and allyship by mm. a whole range of different communities um, because it just had to get through. Absolutely. So this bill allows people to be able to 
change the gender on their birth certificate without the need for any kind of surgery or, or physical or physical change, um, which absolutely is so important. What's going to happen now? So the legislation has been passed. When will it start coming into effect? What, what, what needs to happen for us to be able to go out and start affirming our gender on our birth certificates? So there's so many steps to go with implementation, which is always one of the more frustrating parts because you get to celebrate a vote going through and then you're like, oh, there might be a few meetings now that we need to get people to and make sure people's voices are heard all over again. So the, um, uh, the, in terms of implementation, you can imagine there's a lot of forms and documents the government is going to need to change if um, we're allowed to change our birth certificate to list other than male and female a whole range of diverse genders and um, including non-binary then there needs to be a whole lot of subsequent changes to the forms of a whole lot of other government for um, government run and government funded services so that side of implementation will need to occur and it will need to occur all the way from childcare centres, schools, community health services to hospitals. Um, so that's part of the implementation phase to look at all the things that need to happen. Um, the second thing, I guess, is that there's also provision for children under the age of 16 to change their um, uh, markers on their birth certificates as well. And that requires a whole lot of other education because you need to have parents to and carers to agree. They would need both, if, or only both, if you have more, I guess. You can work out who it is, but both parents to agree, you'll need um, someone to sign an assessment to say that you're competent to understand the ramifications of the decision. And then you need someone else to sign another document um, to say that it is in your best interest as a child under 16 to be able to do this. Um, so we're going to have to educate and inform a whole range of health providers and um, schools too about what that assessment might look like, what does it mean to allow a child to affirm their gender correctly um, at that age because we know that there may be some resistance. So there's a lot more sort of community education and training that needs to go on um, in line with the implementation process the government has to put in place. Wow, that sounds like a really complex task but one that is going to help so many people and saved so many lives. It's really, this is such an exciting piece of legislation. I wish I was born in Victoria so that I could do this. Um, well, um, Felicity, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and talk to us about this because it is such an important thing to keep to keep talking about and such a wonderful win, I think, in, in a couple of weeks that have not been so great for a variety of different communities. Just quickly, if we want to learn more about this, follow Queer Space, anything like that, any social media handles that we can latch ourselves onto? Look, I think the two good ones to um, follow, aside from looking for Queer Space or following us on Facebook or Twitter, is to also look at Transgender Victoria and at Y Gender. And both those organisations will include information about what the impact is going to be. And we've been working with government this week to ask how we can start to let our communities know and parents of trans and gender diverse and non-binary kids know what the timelines will be. And you did ask that earlier. And 
the law does um, the la- the latest date for it to be enacted, for it to be sort of up and ready to go, is May 2020. Mm. So it's still a fair way away. It might happen earlier than that, but there is a lot of um, a lot of paperwork that some very hardworking government officials are going to be working on to make sure that not only do the drop-down boxes for everything work and the birth certificates um, look like they're supposed to look like, but that every every workplace, every school that's enrolling a child, um, you know, the Vic roads when you go and get a license, all know what it's going, what it's, the changes are going to mean for our transgender, diverse, and non-binary communities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a lot of other education that needs to go on. Mm. So yeah, ho- unfortunately, it's a bit of a long drag time, but um, as we get closer to the date early next year, I'm sure Queer Space and other groups like Thorn Harbour Health. Um, we'll be ready for having a party and supporting that. Absolutely. Well, Felicity, thank you so much and um, have a great day. You too. Thanks for that. Bye. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR, 8.5am and 3cr.org.au. That is all the time we have for the show. What an amazing show. We had Gemma Carfarella in, um, on, the, on the line talking about Save Footscray, Save Footscray Park campaign. We had Renda Hodge come into the studio talking about her amazing documentary film that I'm hoping we'll be able to see soon. We had Ruby Hamad about, talking about her book, White Tears, Brown Scars, out today. And just before, we had Felicity Marlowe from Queer Space talking about the recent passing of the Births, Deaths and Marriages Amendment Bill, a really important piece of legislation. Mm. And lots of news about all the happenings. Keep the good, good fight happening. Yeah, lots of activism out there that we need to continue to do to keep all the communities we have in Australia included and safe and moving forward. Listen back on 3cr.org.au for audio on demand and look out for the podcast um, sometime next week. And up next we have Accent of Women. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.